Welcome to the Acton Institute Events Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. On June 17, 1997, United States Supreme Court Associate Justice Antonin Scalia delivered the keynote address at the Acton Institute's 7th Annual Anniversary Dinner. His remarks were entitled, On Interpreting the Constitution. Justice Scalia was arguably the Supreme Court's most famous originalist in interpreting the Constitution. Scalia was equally known for using a textualist approach to statutory interpretation of the law. Back when he gave this address, originalism and textualism were essentially synonymous. Today, however, there is a clear distinction between the two. Originalism is the interpretation of the Constitution as it would have been understood when it was first adopted. Textualism is the idea that what the text says is simply the law. According to Scalia, the Constitution is static. It cannot change and should not be open to discussion surrounding historical or present inquiries. This approach directly opposes the idea that the Constitution is a living document which should adapt to our ever-changing culture and societal norms. Scalia's argument is that instead of examining the intentions of the drafters, we should look to the common understanding of the text at the time it was written. Scalia believed that the law does not allow room for hearsay or subjective interpretations, and is often quoted as saying, the text is the law, and it is the text that must be observed. To learn more about upcoming and previous Acton Institute events, please visit our website at acton.org events. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Institute Events is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Thank you very much, Mr. Antonini, <clears throat> Bishop Mengling, Reverend Clergy, Governor Engler, Father Sirico, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <clears throat> Dick and I were talking about how to say my first name uh, uh, before he introduced me. He got it wrong. I, I think he got it wrong. I don't know. My, my grandfather's name was Antonino, and it, it's just uh, a tradition in, in Sicilian families for the son to be named, the first son to be named after the paternal grandfather. And for some reason, my father dropped the, the O off. Maybe he thought he was anglicizing the name or something. I, 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 but, I've, <clears throat> but anyway, that, I mean, that's why my nickname is Nino. And I've, I've always said it Antonin, but, I, but it reminded me when you said Antonin. When, when, I was, uh, when I was nominated to the Supreme Court, the Washington Press Corps was furious because uh, they, they had not a clue that uh, 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 Chief Justice Berger was stepping down and that there were going to be two new appointments, one for the new Chief Justice and one to, uh, to replace uh, uh, Rehnquist, who was going to be Chief Justice. Uh, this, I mean, th- those of you who <clears throat> haven't spent a lot of time in Washington cannot appreciate what, what a rare thing it is for something to be set that close. So we come into the, um, in, into the, uh, the, the White House press room, which is sort of a pit which has these snarling creatures, you know, you're up on the stage and they're, <coughs> they're, <coughs> they're all out there and they were really mad because they didn't know about all this. <clears throat> and as we go in, I remember uh, um, some of President Reagan's staff 
uh, said to me as we were going, in, well, you know, we've been we've been working on him for for a half hour. I think I think he'll say Scalia right, but Antonin, I don't know. <laughs> and that's how it happened. It it, it was all right. Um, <clears throat> I want to talk to you tonight about about the constitution. Assuming my voice will hold out. I want to talk to you tonight about the Constitution of the United States, uh, something uh, to which I, I devote uh, a fair amount of my time these days. Um, I could begin by talking, and the prepared text I have here spends a, a fair amount of time uh, uh, telling you uh, what a remarkable document it is. And, and I'll, I'll skip over that part rather lightly because being the group you are, I, <clears throat> I assume you know that. But maybe you forget it now and then. I mean... Um, there, there is really nothing like it in the world. It, it is not a great constitution simply because it's our constitution. There is no constitution like it in the world, there, and there never will be. Never again in the history of mankind will, will a governing document be put together not by political parties figuring out how to passel out the power the best way or by, by conquering armies, but, but by a... Uh, uh, wait, May, June, July, four month, a four-month seminar attended by the most prominent people in the country, which is how, how this, this document came to be. It will never happen again. Uh, from mid-May to mid-September, the, 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 the most respected and politically experienced people in the nation spent every day of the week in Philadelphia, uh, five days a week uh, uh, having their conferences, sometimes on Saturdays as well, and then discussing the things in the evening uh, when they got back to the inn. Um, that's a whole baseball season, or used to be a whole baseball season. I mean, <laughs> you, you know that, that it would not happen that way again today. I mean, uh, you, you know, the, the, the great men and women would go up to Philadelphia, and they would adopt some general principles and say, well, you know, let, let the staff work out the details, and they'd go back to Washington. <laughs> But, you know, these are the greatest men in the country, Washington, Franklin, all of, all of the leaders. It will never happen again. And, you know, when you get blasé about it, I, I always uh, uh, recall a wonderful trip I had uh, <clears throat> when I served in the Ford administration in the, in the Department of Justice. I was head of a division called the Office of Legal Counsel, which was the legal advisor to the government and, and to the White House. Um, we were invited to uh, to go over to Rome to help uh, the Italian, uh, the corresponding office in the Italian government celebrate uh, their anniversary. Uh, it, it was an agency called the Avvocatore dello Stato, the state's advocate. They they were the advice giver and also the litigating arm of the of the uh, Ministry of Justice. So I went over along with Rex Lee, whom uh, many of you may know, a former. Solicitor General and uh, then later President of uh, Brigham Young University. So we leave the Justice Department. Those of you that know the Justice Department, it's on Constitution Avenue, sort of a nice Art Deco building, very pleasant. And we go over to the offices of the Avocatora dello Stato, which are located in a building that was once the headquarters of the Augustinian Order, where Martin Luther lived when he was in Rome. You know, the mind reels backward. Art Deco compared to Martin Luther. I mean, how, how, how nouveau, how nouveau we are, we Americans. And, and, and uh, 
I think very often you have that feeling when you go to Europe. You know, this is all so old and so venerable. And then it occurred to me, these guys, this, this Avogatora dello Stato, they were celebrating their 100th anniversary. Big deal. My, my country was about to celebrate at that time, coming close on to celebrating, its 200th anniversary. We have been one people living under this, uh, this remarkable document for a century longer than Italy has been a nation. For a century longer than Germany has been a nation. France has been through five constitutions and something like uh, 11 different forms of government since, uh, since we started living under this constitution. So, you know, in, in many ways, we, we are the new kids on the block, we Americans. Uh, and I hope we retain uh, much of the good qualities that go with youth and vigor. But in one thing, we are the most ancient and the most venerable and the most experienced and I think the wisest. And that is in what, uh, what James Madison at that grand convention in Philadelphia, uh, what he called, what he and his, his colleagues were engaged in, the new science of government. We're the oldest and the best at that. Uh, so you should, uh, you should not think that this Constitution is special to us just because it's ours. It's not special because it's ours. It's special because it's a remarkable document and has maintained liberty and stability in this country for longer than any other written Constitution in the world. Uh, now, I... I that's telling you stuff that, that maybe you know already. What, what I want to talk about is what we are doing to our Constitution, or what we think we're doing to it when we, when we interpret it. Um, I am one of a small but hardy breed of uh, uh, interpretists left in the world who are called uh, textualists or originalists. Not, not strict constructionist. I, I am not a, I, I will get to that. I am not a strict constructionist. But I am a textualist. I believe you... Uh, people ask me, well, you know, why, when did you become a textualist? What caused you to become a textualist? You know, when did you begin eating human beings? You know, as though it's some... It's some as though it's some weird thing, you know. I, I mean, I, when did you begin to become not a textualist? You have a text... You should read the text. I, I, it, it, I'm not kidding. I'm always baffled at the amazement of these. But, well, what a novel idea. You're a textualist. Uh, so I treat the, uh, the uh, Constitution the way, the way uh, laws, statutes have always been treated. We try to figure out what it meant when it was adopted. Now, I say I'm a textualist and an originalist. I do not believe that it, its meaning uh, evolves over generations so that to each age it contains everything that's uh, good and true and beautiful, even though it's not really written in there. Um, now, my, my philosophy was, until recently, not only not weird... It was orthodoxy. Everybody you know, at least said that, you know, the Constitution was that rock, that unchanging fundamental document that means today what it meant, and it's our salvation. And that's every, every, now, they didn't always follow it. I mean, it isn't that, that, you, 
that you didn't have willful judges who would twist and distort it in the past. Yes, you, you will always have willful judges. But the difference was in the good old days, they had the decency to lie about it. They would, you know, they... They would say that, you know, it used to mean that, but it, and that was a lie. Today, this is a major change because, I'm, reflect upon this, hypocrisy is the beginning of virtue. To, today, you do not have to lie about it. You just simply say, well, it ought to mean that. And therefore, it means that. We, we indeed have uh, opinions. This is a development that has occurred probably in the last 35 years or so in American constitutional jurisprudence. In, in our opinions uh, it, it involving the Eighth Amendment, uh, the amendment that prohibits cruel and unusual punishments, we state that what constitutes cruel and unusual punishment changes over time. The provision does not mean today what it meant in, uh, in 1791 when it was adopted. So that something that was not cruel and unusual punishment then may be cruel and unusual today because it, it evolves. According to, our opinions say, to, to, uh, to reflect the evolving standards of decency of a maturing society. That's the language in our, in our opinions. The evolving standards of decency that reflect a maturing society. Let me say it again. The evolving standards of decency. I mean, it, it is so Pollyannish, you know, sort of every day, in every way, we get better and better. Societies, you know, societies only mature. They never rot. Uh, now, now, that is, of course, not the frame of mind of a group of men who think there is a need for a Bill of Rights. They are less Pollyannish. They, they have less confidence that... Uh, uh, that humanity uh, will be better or even, indeed, as good in the future as it is today. I mean, surely the whole purpose of a Bill of Rights is precisely to, uh, to stabilize certain provisions so that they cannot be changed by a future and less virtuous generation. That's the kind of frame of mind they had. And that frame of mind is reflected in my kind of constitution, but it is not reflected in the constitution that we have today and that uh, most lawyers, most judges, and worst of all, I'm afraid, most Americans believe in, and, and many of you probably believe in it, although you don't know it. That is, you have heard the phrase, the living constitution. Living constitution, that wonderful document that grows with the society that it governs so that it always reflects the best virtues of that society. It's a tough thing to argue against. I mean, I am, I am trying to sell you a dead constitution, right? It, it's a, this is a, you know, you're at a disadvantage right away. Uh, now, if, if, if you think that, that this is not true, though, I, I had a, I speak to groups that come to the court now and then, student groups, and, and there was a, one group I was told several years ago was, uh, was going to be there. And they said, this is a group that uh, is conducting a, a, co a nationwide competition on the Constitution. And I said, isn't that terrific? For high school students, it seems very good. 
an admirable group. I should talk to these kids. Well, it turns out that what the competition consists of is each school had various teams. They had a First Amendment team, a Fourth Amendment team, a Fifth Amendment team, a Sixth Amendment team, an Eighth Amendment team. And the way you win the competition is you figure out the, the most incredible, unbelievable new right that no one has ever thought of before that can be developed under the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment or the Sixth Amendment. Right? In other words, you develop this living constitution into, uh, you know, what... Uh, uh, be, be all that it can be, I guess. That's uh, sort of... Uh, 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 no. Um... It has come to such a pass that, you know, when I was a kid growing up in New York, I was born in Trenton, Dick, but I, I, really, I really grew up in New York City, in Queens. And in those more simple days, uh, when people got frustrated with uh, uh, the state of affairs in, in the world or in government or almost anywhere, they would, just, they, they would pound the table and say, there ought to be a law. It was a good, healthy, democratic reaction, I thought. There ought to be a law against... In fact, there, there was a comic strip, There Ought to Be a Law, about really obnoxious people that there ought to be a law against, you know, people playing boom boxes or whatever. Um, I haven't heard that phrase in years. People don't say that anymore. They really don't. I haven't heard it. What they now say is, it's unconstitutional. I mean, if there is anything that really is bad, why, it must be unconstitutional. Never mind the text. It doesn't matter. The text is irrelevant. We've got a due process clause, equal We'll squeeze it in there somewhere. But if it's really bad, it has to be unconstitutional. Um, it, it's like, um, uh, to, to, to take another example from popular culture, there was, there, there was a while back an ad on, on television for some pizza sauce. I think it was Prego, something like Prego pizza sauce. I don't know, they sell it in the Midwest. They sell that. And, and you know, the, the husband in, in this ad, he... Uh, he asked his wife, well, you know, you're going to buy this store-bought and sauce. Um, I mean, why aren't you going to make it yourself? Are you, doesn't have a, does it have oregano in it? She says, it's in there. He says, yeah, but it does, it, does, it, does it have pepper? It's in there. Does it have olive oil? It's in there. What about basil? It's in there. We got that kind of a constitution now. What do you want? <laughs> you... You want a right to an abortion? It's in there. You want a right to die? It's in there. Whatever is good and true and beautiful, never mind the text. It's irrelevant. Now, uh, you should not think that this, uh, this affliction, this depravity of mind that, uh, that reads a constitution uh, to say whatever you want it to say is, uh, is a, uh, uh, an affliction and depravity that is limited to liberals. It is not. Uh, it, 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 uh, conservatives are quite as willing to bend the Constitution to their will as, as liberals are. Uh, the, the best example is last term. I think we released on the same day two opinions. One of them was the Romer opinion that, that found a, a, a new constitutional right uh, for homosexuals not to have a, a state... Uh, constitutional provision adopted by referendum which prevented uh, uh, government, including local government, from according any special privileges on the basis of homosexuality. We struck that down as unconstitutional. I, I presume uh, relying on the uh, homosexual clause of the, of the Bill of Rights. Uh, 
The same day, how and, and the liberals applauded that. The liberals loved it. The, the conservatives did not like it. The same day, however, we uh, released an opinion uh, in a case uh, involving BMW, the, uh, the automobile manufacturer, involving uh, punitive damages. Uh, BMW had gotten uh, hit with some incredible amount of uh, level of punitive damages for having sold as new cars which indeed had been scratched in transport and they, they painted over the scratches. They claimed it's a standard practice in the automotive uh, uh, industry, but the, but the Beamer purchaser said, yeah, but I didn't buy a car, I bought a Beamer. And the, uh, I guess it was the Arkansas jury believed uh, the purchasers and gave them an enormous amount of punitive damages. My court held it was unconstitutional to give excessive damages under, I suppose, the excessive damages clause of the Bill of Rights. <laughs> and in 200 years, we had never said that, you know, you're entitled to due process, but if the jury comes in with the wrong answer and gives too much, you know, it's one of the costs of democracy. It's not a federal constitutional violation, but it is now a federal constitutional violation, at least if it's punitive damages. And the conservatives loved it. They loved it. Wonderful. Uh, so search your souls. I mean, if, if you're going to be honest about uh, reading the Constitution to say only what it says and not what you want it to say, you have to take the good with the bad. And, and you can't like the, uh, the, 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 the liberal invention or the, the conservative inventions, but dislike the liberal inventions. Um, I want to say something else about, about, about the living Constitution. As its name implies... <laughs> It is often uh, marketed on the, uh, on the appeal that, well, it's, uh, it has to be a living constitution because it has to grow and expand with the society that it governs. It's, it's sort of a, it's, it's an organic kind of a thing, you know, it, it, anthropomorphic, like the stock market brokers who, you know, you read in the paper, the stock market is, uh, is resting for an assault on the, on the 7,000 <laughs> It's, it's there to, resting at some base camp, you know. Well, the, the, the Constitution is the same thing, you see. It, 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 it's like a human being, and if it, if it didn't expand and grow, it would become brittle and snap. So what these people, these living Constitution people want to bring to us is flexibility. The Constitution has to expand to ask yourself, ask yourself, do these people want to bring us flexibility? In my constitution, if you want a right to an abortion, create it the way most rights are created in democratic societies. Pass a law. You don't want it, pass a law the other way. You want the death penalty, pass a law having it. You don't want it, pass a law the other way. You want a right to die, pass a law. You don't want it, pass a law the other way. You want punitive damages, pass a law. You don't want it. I mean, that's flexibility. No, these people don't want flexibility. They want what it is inevitably the function of a Bill of Rights or of a Constitution to provide, rigidity. They insist that there be no death penalty. Although the Constitution says, I mean, you know, is the death penalty cruel and unusual punishment under, so that it's, it's bad under the Eighth Amendment? I have sat with, uh, with no less than three, three colleagues, all retired now, who thought the death penalty was unconstitutional. Although it's mentioned in the Constitution, and no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due... What do you think they're talking about? (laughs) 
but never mind. I mean, uh, the, really, the text for, for someone who is not a textualist or an originalist, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You, you cannot imagine how, I, I'm not kidding, I'm not exaggerating the state of the, <laughs> the state of the law. It doesn't matter. For the, for the non-originalist, every day is a new day. You just look, I wonder if the death penalty is unconstitutional. <laughs> um, let me just take off a few of the problems. We're supposed to be out of here at quarter after. We'll be pretty close to quarter after. Um, problem one with the living constitution is legitimacy. If it indeed were the case that the Constitution is not, a, is not a statute, a text that judges can deal with the way they deal with any statute. And we don't think a statute changes its meaning over, over time. If it's not that, if it is sort of this aspirational document in, into which a society can pour all of its most profound beliefs, then why does my court have dibs on its interpretation? Um, you know, some of the Europeans that, that have copied our system of judicial review of legislative action. By the way, that's the only significant portion of our Constitution the Europeans have copied, none of the rest. Not the most central portions, such as real separation of powers, even between the executive and the legislature. That's real separation. Or, you know, a bicameral legislature to weaken it. They don't copy that because that, you know, that enfeebles uh, the government. They don't like an enfeebled government. I'm, I'm sorry. This is all a parenthetical. I am sorry, by the way, that, that some Americans have begun to think the way the Europeans do. And they, you know, the Europeans say, oh, what, a, what an inefficient government. It's gridlock. And you hear Americans say, you know, what an inefficient government. It's gridlock. Yes, that's, that's what they meant it to be. <laughs> I mean, where was I? Unlike these new European constitutions that copy our system of judicial review, our constitution doesn't say the interpreter of the constitution shall be the Supreme Court. Um, and as I tell some of the foreign groups that visit the court, we, we are not a constitutional court. Not only don't we do exclusively constitutional interpretation, but what constitutional interpretation we do, we do by accident. Because that's what Marbury versus Madison says. It says, look, we're here to decide private disputes. But to decide private disputes, we have to apply the laws that are in effect. But I can't tell whether this law that's before me is really, a, it looks like a law, but if it contradicts the Constitution, it's not a law. So I have to decide whether it, you know, it's lawyer's work is what, is what John Marshall says in Marbury versus Madison. It's just lawyer's work. It's what lawyers and judges have always done to, to decide what is the law. But if that's not what our Constitution is, it's not a regular law. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's this embodiment of, of principles. Then, uh, then Marbury versus Madison was wrong. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what the evolving standards of decency of, uh, of my maturing society are. The, the Congress knows much better than I. I'm really out of touch. <laughs> the second problem, the second problem with, uh, <coughs> with rejecting... Uh, Textualism and, and originalism, and this, by the way, for those of you who want to debate this with, with the other side, this is really a killer argument. I, it's, it's a terrible thing to do, but uh, ask the law professor on the other side. Okay, okay. Suppose I agree with you that originalism 
is not the proper method of interpretation. We'll use your method of interpretation. What is your criterion? Really, profound silence. Because the fact is that there is not even another candidate in the field. It is not enough to be a non-originalist to say, you know, I don't believe that what governs us is the original meaning of the text. That's, that just means you don't agree with me. If you're not an originalist, you've got to be something else. What is your theory of interpretation if it is not originalism? Non-originalism is not a theory. And, you know, once you, once you ask for that, you, you get as many different criteria as there are law professors or judges. The philosophy of Plato, uh, John Rawls, the philosophy of John Rawls, what? natural law, we all agree on that. Now, you either use originalism or you use nothing, which is, you know, in those areas where we've made up the Constitution, essentially uh, what we use. Uh, what, what do you imagine a judicial body does when it, for example, in, in the area of, uh, of uh, abortion, Roe versus Wade and all, and all of that? Uh, the, the latest embodiment of our, of our constitutional test is that uh, a state law is, uh, is unconstitutional if it unduly burdens a woman's right to an abortion. Well, you know, how do, I, how do you think I will decide that when when it comes to my court in the next case. Where, where do I go to look up whether it's an undue burden? If I look up the statute books and the history books, I find any burden was not an undue burden. But where do I go? What law book do I run to? It's not a lawyer's question. So how do you think the courts decide these things or whether there's a right to die? You sort of say, gee, I don't think it's, you think it's an undue burden? I don't think it's an undue burden. What about you? You think it's an undue burden? How many? Well, that's five. Five is all it takes. It, it must be an undue burden. I mean, I, I, I am making light of it, but the fact is there is no criterion. If you want your judges to just, just vote their guts, fine, then if you think that's law. But once you abandon the original meaning, you know, originalists don't always agree. Brother, Brother Thomas and I... Uh, Clarence Thomas is an originalist. We will disagree as to what the original meaning was now and then. But we know what we're looking for anyway. Um, I, I will conclude on, on, the, on the unhappy note that... Um, Unless we turn back from this approach to the Constitution, I, I, I really think we, we, will, we will destroy the republic or destroy the value of a, of a written uh, Constitution and a written Bill of Rights. Uh, because ultimately, if the Constitution does not bear a fixed meaning that can be figured out by lawyers, uh, then its meaning will be determined by, who do you think? The majority. I mean, the people have come to figure out that I don't know anything. I haven't learned at Harvard Law School any more about whether there's a right to, or whether there ought to be a right to die than, than they know. I mean, I, I don't know any more than Joe Sixpack. This is not a lawyer's question. The people have come to figure that out. And when they come to figure it out, they, they also figure out that they should select their Supreme Court justices 
not on the basis of whether these people are good lawyers, because they're not doing lawyers' work anymore. They should rather select them on the basis of whether they agree with them on whether there ought to be a right to this, that, and the other thing. And that is what our confirmation hearings have, you know, I was going to say deteriorated to, but it's not a deterioration. If that is what the Supreme Court is doing, that is what those hearings ought to be like. It's inevitable, though, that people will take that back to themselves. And it is the people whom the senators represent in those hearings. And they will ask one nominee after you, do you think there is a right to this in the Constitution? And he says, I don't think there is. You don't think there is one? Why? I certainly think there is, and my constituents think there is. And if you don't think that right is not in that Constitution, I'm certainly not going to vote to confirm you. Now, what about this other right? You think that's... This is really quite, quite mad conducting a mini-plebiscite on the meaning of the Constitution of the United States every time you select a new Supreme Court justice. But it will inevitably be that way, and it ought to be that way, if the Supreme Court is not doing the work of lawyers, which is doing the work of, of taking a text and interpreting it the way lawyers interpret texts to discern what was its original meaning. So... Um, I, I am not at all hopeful that, that it's possible to get back to where we were, really. It, it, is, it is such an alluring, enticing philosophy to believe that the Constitution means whatever you think it ought to mean. How do you talk somebody out of that? It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And judges who are non-originalists, who think the Constitution means what it ought to mean, they go home happy every night. <laughs> really. They never make a decision they don't like. <laughs> I make a lot of constitutional decisions I don't like. I, I was the fifth vote on the, in the flag-burning case. The way, because I am not a strict constructionist, my, my reading of the First Amendment is that it protects freedom of expression, not just freedom of... I mean, if you interpret the First Amendment literally, it says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Well, I guess handwritten letters are neither speech nor press, so the government ought to be able to censor handwritten letters. Right, of course not. That's strict construction, but it's silly construction. You, you don't interpret a text that way. Uh, I interpret the First Amendment. Uh, when it says speech and press, it is using the figure of speech called synecdoche. Name a part to represent the whole, as in, I see a sail. Speech and press represent expression. Anyway, that's the way I read, read, read the First Amendment. So I said, if somebody burns his own flag, it's his flag. He's doing it to show contempt for the government, contempt even for the flag. He's entitled to express contempt for the flag. So I was the fifth vote. That didn't make me happy. I do not like, I used to say, bearded people who go around burning... <laughs> who go around burning American flags. And I, came, and I came down to breakfast the next day, and my, my wife, the lovely Maureen, who, you know, has a sharp Irish tongue, is, is standing at the stove humming stars and stripes forever. <laughs> uh, uh, But, but you don't have to put up with that kind of stuff if, if you're not an originalist, because the Constitution means what you want it to mean. It's wonderful. It's very hard to talk people back out of it. I've tried to talk you back out of it tonight. I hope you will try to talk your friends back out of it. 
and, and you don't have to call it a dead constitution. Let's call it the enduring constitution. Thank you.